And then I, it kind of just settled in my mind. It was like, but you complain about bad governance in football. You complain about corruption. You've experienced corruption. You know, get in there and figure out if it's possible to run a well-governed football club. Can it be ethical? Can it be transparent? Can it be accountable? Can it be democratic? Can it be equitable? Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. Today we have Maggie Murphy, CEO of Lewis Football Club in the UK and a former global advocacy manager at Transparency International, in conversation with Dan Huff, Professor of Politics at the University of Sussex. In the episode, Maggie walks us through her fascinating journey from anti-corruption campaigning to football management. She and Dan discuss how the issues of weak governance and corruption are interlinked with the problem of inequity between the men's and women's games. Drawing on Maggie's experience at Lewis FC, they ask what ethical club management looks like and the future for sports governance more generally. We hope you enjoyed the episode and thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Dan Huff, Professor of Politics at the University of Sussex, and I'm delighted to be hosting this episode of Kickback. With me today, I've got a really interesting guest. Uh, Maggie Murphy is going to be speaking to us for the next half hour, 45 minutes. She is currently Chief Executive Officer of Lewis FC here in the United Kingdom. Um, And she's also got a really interesting background in corruption, anti-corruption, advocacy with Transparency International, also with Amnesty International and a variety of other organisations. So she's one of a rare breed who knows plenty about football, the the global game and anti-corruption. So uh, I'm intrigued to see what she uh, what she makes of some of the questions I ask her about those issues. First of all, Maggie, welcome. How are you? I'm I'm very good, Dan. Thank you. It's chucking it down with rain. So I'm coming very close to the to the laptop to listen because the rain is just pounding above my head. But yeah, all good. So a very British start to the podcast then. It's raining. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, for those who don't know, being serious, um, Lewis Football Club are a, are a semi-professional football club, men's and women's teams, and they, they have been catching a few eyes over the last few years, haven't they? And and, um, and your, your role as CEO has been part of that. But can you give us a bit of a flavour for the football club that you lead? Yeah, so I guess the, the, the line I would say is that we're a football club with personality. Uh, we're not just about the winning. We are 100% fan-owned. In fact, we have owners from 37 countries around the world. I think we just added Cyprus this morning. And those are people who look at the club and essentially uh, see that we are trying to build something ethical and transparent and well-governed with equality at the heart. And I'll come on to that in a sec. And they decide to literally buy into the club and become an owner. And, and, and a lot of them kind of tell me that they wish that Lewis FC was on their doorstep. Uh, that obviously brings with it a lot of responsibility because we're trying to create, in my mind, the best possible type of football club. And it went into fan ownership about 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, on the back of the financial crisis. And that's because at the time it was very traditionally run. There was a couple of local uh, businessmen who'd done well for themselves and they wanted to put money into the local club. Financial crisis hit and they withdrew their money. And that is a story that plays out up and down the country you know, year to year. And it happened at Lewis and the club nearly went into administration. And the story goes that six fans came together and they recognised the fact that a football club in this country is very much part of the unique fabric of a town, not just on an emotional level and bringing people together, but also on a financial level. You know, our suppliers, the 
people that create our brilliant pies and beer and, and all the rest of it, you know, we saw that in the pandemic, we are very much a part of the local fabric. So cutting a long story short, they took the club into fan ownership rather than just decide to own it themselves. And first there was six, then there was 60 people. And over the years, it's uh, grown and grown and grown. And that means that those owners come together for at their AGM and they elect the directors who I report to. And with that kind of element of democracy comes other ways of changing a football club that might not be possible in more corporate structures. And so in 2017, we became the first club in the world to split our revenue equally between the men's side and the women's side because a few directors stood on that platform. Probably not really possible in many other environments. Uh, And with that came another thousand owners who also wanted a football club that was doing that kind of thing, let's say. And from that point, this is just five years, we've had a fifth year um, anniversary of equality, let's say. Uh, And in those five years, the, the women's side has certainly grown renowned the championship. So that's the second tier in England. So we play against Crystal Palace, Liverpool, you know, Blackburn Rovers, big names. But also the men's side has grown as well. So they got promoted in that, that same time. They've seen attendances increase by about 83%. So the whole club has grown because of trying to establish these democratic principles, but also with that more transparency, accountability is obviously big for me personally. Uh, and then that equality side as well, trying to trying to bring about a club that treats its women and men equally through pay, but also through equal decision-making, which I think is the crucial thing. And I mean, that's all fascinating. As a football fan myself, I could talk about that until the cows come <laughs> out. But I'm quite interested to know how someone with a, a background in anti-corruption, as I say, you were, you were at TI for nearly six years. How, how did you make the leap into football management and football governance? Is it something you, you knew you were going to do? Or was it simply that an opportunity arose to make an impact in this sector and you thought, I'll make the most of that? I mean... I'm very much here because of corruption. Okay, that <laughs> Not that I paid a bribe. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, going back, like I've always loved football growing up as a kid. I always played. I faced plenty of challenges when I was growing up for being a girl, you know, teams being closed down or not being set up, blocks and barriers, the basic stuff like never being given a decent pitch, one time turning up for a game and being told that my game was being cancelled because the men wanted to use our pitch and they were going to rest theirs for the weekend. Those kinds of small things, uh, bad referees, bad kit, hand-me-down kit. And But football, all I wanted was for football to be my pastime. I've never, ever, ever, ever wanted to work in football. And I think that if structures were more equal in the world and in society, then I wouldn't be in this role. I'd probably still be working in, in, in the anti-corruption or human rights sector. But as w- when you... When you spend, say, 20 years playing football and constantly being knocked back by these tiny, tiny, small things, and then it gets to a stage, I remember it got to a stage when I hit the age of around about 30 and I I didn't want to give up my weekends, very common story. My injuries would last longer than ever. I was living in Berlin, working for Transparency National at the time. And then the FIFA corruption scandal hit. And it was so boring because... It was one of many. It was just the latest one. There's been one since. And it was so predictable, wasn't it? It was so predictable. And But for me at that time, looking back, because I'd stopped playing and I was looking back and thinking, why was that so hard? It's the most popular game in the world. You don't need that much to be able to play. So why is it so hard for women and girls around the world to play the most popular game in the world? And I think for me, the FIFA corruption scandal then just said, look, 
We at the top just don't care about you. We're here to govern the game, ostensibly. We're here to grow the game. We're here to make football for all. But actually, we really don't care about you. And the more that I read into it, the more that I was reading you know, books that were talking about the, the budget lines that were used to pay bribes, often were the inverted quotation marks, development um, budget lines, which often means women, <laughs> women's football, um, and youth and special projects and, and, and bits and pieces like that. So I realized that people that were, you know, in charge of the game just didn't, didn't care about me. And, that, and working at TI at the time and being able to read some of the Supreme Court judgment papers, I was able to understand it a lot better than I ever would have had I not had the experience working at TI. So I was looking at the money laundering arrangements and the private jets and yachts that were used to, you know, it was just nuts. It was, it's, you know, it begs for the film to be made. So that was important. You don't ask people to make it, given the <laughs> no, 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 themselves. Okay, yeah. to make their own film. No, um, so it was instrumental for me, and it also reminded me of a couple of experiences that I personally had related to corruption, which which I can mention. But I became a lot more active as a result of that. So whilst I was still with TI, I, I helped to set up an organisation called Equal Playing Field, which aimed to promote women and girls around the world, opportunity, equality, respect, and through that was connected to a wider network of women in you know in different countries around the world that were all trying to do just trying to kind of create a better football landscape and worlds against all the barriers and essentially there was a Guinness World Record that is thrown in there that I won't go into but basically after doing this Guinness World Record which was at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro so it's the highest altitude football match ever played that was in 2017 two months after doing that I remember seeing a really small tweet go out right really inconsequential and it was from lewis fc and it said um imagine a world where i can't even remember what it said imagine a world where gender didn't hold you back and you know something like that and i clicked on it i realized that there was this tiny tiny football club that was a tiny part of the problem but trying to be a big part of the solution when it came to equality in football um and good governance and so i clicked and became an owner in 2017 and um, my path started crossing and they asked me a couple of years later whether I would come on board as a general manager overseeing the women's side of the club. And that was big for me because I was still working in anti-corruption. This wasn't part of my plan. I was, you know, I loved my work at the G20 in the UN and on beneficial ownership and anti I still follow everything and, and I'm so happy with, you know, where things are going, or at least from the outside, it seems like things are improving. That's another podcast, I guess. And I think for me, a lot of things fell into place and I thought, hang on a sec, I'm being asked to put my money where my mouth was. And it was like I was taking a big pay cut to, to come to the club, but I felt like it was too important somehow. A little bit of that, T.I. Lithuania runs these brilliant um, integrity schools each year. And one of the posters that I took from one of those schools said, if not you, then who? And for me, that was quite strong in my mind when I was you know took that call I mean I laughed immediately and said no 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 you don't understand I've got a career doing this other stuff and then I, it kind of just settled in my mind and was like but you complain about bad governance in football you complain about corruption you've experienced corruption you know get in there and figure out if it's possible to run a well-governed football club can it be ethical can it be transparent can it be accountable can it be democratic can it be equitable and I guess I'm trying to figure out right now if that's possible and if it's possible to create the football club that I really wished existed when I was growing up as well. 
so for me it's all connected yeah. <laughs> but oh, I, I certainly totally know that like. some of my old colleagues are very confused as to what I'm doing running a football club it is a genuinely fascinating story from anti-corruption activist to corruption to, to um, football <laughs> manager and of course the, the, the two are not separate are they they, they no, remain linked, even if it, uh, only indirectly yeah um, and, and just my last thing on that is just that I feel like we're trying to create better societies whether you work in anti-corruption or human rights we're trying to create better societies and we can and football has such power over society and culture. We can try and hit these goals, but if we don't use something like football, we're just going to hit them 10 or 20 years later because of the massive power that football has. So I want football to be better, but I also want society to be better. And I think that you can use those interlinked to, to push for greater on both sides. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I was going to ask you about the c- corruption in, in in football, really, and and. Uh, and the type of thing that you experienced. Now, m- most folks who are interested in the game will have, will have picked up on, you know, the big stories, the, the, the FIFA scandals, plural. Um, the, the, there's regularly sort of talk about owners, uh, particularly in the United Kingdom, uh, and particularly the bigger clubs, although it's not just the bigger clubs. Uh, it's all through the, the pyramid these days. Uh, and about some of the things that have happened there with, with, with owning British football clubs. But if I was to say to you, what, what's the corruption challenge in, in football or perhaps in sport more generally, where would you start? What type of things would you pinpoint immediately? Yeah, I think there's probably a sliding scale. And some of this is just around good governance and integrity and accountability. And I think that's where a lot of the problems start is just football and sports like to think of themselves as special and don't adhere to the same rules that other organizations and businesses do so I've been very very struck by how little transparency there is in football in general like the accounts that clubs release are extremely limited no business would get away with releasing some of the information that they do very few clubs release proper detailed accountability reports or there's, there's just a lack of willingness to act like a business that I see and that trickles down into the way that some entities are run it's a very much a closed shop. Some, a very small number of people in many places are making decisions. There's not clear processes. It's the whim of a single person, often the chair or, or, or an owner. And, and, and I think that there's some general working practices that just are ignored because, again, football sees itself as a special beast. This is how we work. This is tradition. We don't need to open up and do things differently. So giving an example, like diversity. Diversity is obviously extremely limited. And that means that decisions can easily be made for the benefit of one segment of the population, but but not for the rest. And then sometimes what I see is the, the checkbox attitude. So, you know, OK, now we need better diversity. So you bring on a, a black person or you bring on a woman. And where do those people end up sitting? They're not on the nominations committee. They're not on the finance committee. They're in the diversity committee. Right. So so there's just general there's a general lack, I think, of shifting towards a space which is about transparency and accountability and integrity, the, the, all the words that we champion in the anti-corruption world. So I think that's the, the baseline stuff. Then there's like undue power and influence around sponsors, for example. And this is, you know, obviously there's a massive influence around some sponsors that let's take the gambling world. So again, at Lewis FC, we don't we refuse to take gambling money. That, Good on you. In my humble opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's we have more problem child gamblers in this country over the last ten years than ever, and that's partly because of the gamification that gambling brings to football, which is often targeted at young people uh, to get them hooked from an early age. You know, it's cartoon figures that are often used. It's yeah, it's it's just a it's quite a 
a cynical way to introduce a product to an to to an age which actually would be illegal for them to use. So with with gambling, it's not it's not corruption, but there's a lot of influence. And so we've spoken up about things and we've been told off, slap the wrist, we've been threatened with being, you know, kicked out of the league if we don't put up a gambling company stuff around the ground because we're sponsored that the league, not us, is sponsored by a gambling company. So it's kind of like it feels very strange sometimes to not have the right to debate or argue whether or not we should take on a particular sponsor. Again, more of an integrity issue or a good governance issue as opposed to corruption. But then you go further down the line and, you know, a, a story that was very influential also in me taking the step to, to work in football was meeting uh, a young woman called Nadia. I think about her a lot. <laughs> she, uh, she, I remember talking to her, I met her in Berlin and she was telling me about how she was playing for her her club back in she wasn't from Berlin she was from a different country and they won the league I think it was a league with a cup and in the changing room after the game they were celebrating because they did it all off their own back they didn't get any funding or any money and uh, after they they were celebrating in the changing room and talking about what they're going to spend the money on with new kit balls a coach you know and then a, a man walked into the changing room strange First and foremost, say that. there's questions to be asked about that for start. Right. But that's, that's another debate for another day. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Walked in and uh, took the envelope because it was literally cash and just said, I'll look after this for you. And they never saw the money again. And it makes me so angry that somebody is able to be so entitled to be able to do that without any fear of reprimand or any accountability. And, you know, of course, those women would have asked where the money went and they'd earned it. It wasn't a handout. It was something they earned off their own back. And so that kind of thing, I think, is a lot more prevalent than than people know. And then you've got the whole kinds of stuff over ownership. And maybe the other thing is around match fixing, which I think is an interesting one, which probably related to the gambling industry as well. Um, so how much of that do you think goes on? Because I mean, it's quite, it was quite high profile for a while, certainly in, in the football world. But I, I think it's probably not as high profile now as it was five years ago. But, um, but uh, it's all yeah, of it, right? Yeah, I think it was a, I think it was very high profile 10 years ago and, and five years ago. Still lots of um, scandals. I mean, you know, some of these things involved cross European networks of criminal gangs d- dealing with match fixing and, you know, millions and millions of pounds being spent in bribes, but also... Uh, many multiples of that being won through gambling. Um, so I, I don't know how much uh, there have been concerted efforts from Interpol and Europol to try and stamp some of this work out, uh, to stamp some of the match fixing out. I do wonder, though, um, whether it's just been pushed down a level. So it's never really, well, from what I understand, it's never really been at the very, very top, uh, like in the Premier League, because people are extremely well paid and there's too much risk. But if you go down a few levels where players are not paid as well, they become a little bit more, uh, they, you know, they're more susceptible, let's say, to a, a bribe of a few thousand pounds to, and remember, it's often it's spot fixing as opposed to match fixing. So you, the great thing about football is you don't have to bribe a whole team. Games can be very low scoring. A single goal couldn't can win a game, obviously. And so you only have to bribe one person, the goalkeeper or a defender, get them sent off in the first minute. You don't have to involve the rest of the team. You don't have to involve the referee. You can just, you know, involve small things or small actions, like make sure you get a yellow card in this minute or, you know, all those kinds of things are actually quite manageable. And and I think that's an area for women's football to be careful of, again, because the salaries, if you've got a situation where salaries are not high enough and there's little oversight or regulation, 
then I think that's where some of these things could creep in. Yeah, around 15 years ago, there was a player uh, who played for the team that I support who um, who got caught betting on games that he was playing in to, uh, to and, and obviously he was betting the team would lose. I mean, the team I support are bad enough as it is, Maggie. We don't need that much uh, help to, to lose games. But um, but he he then said one of the big reasons is he, he he grew up with lots of players who were basically similar ability to him, but life had dealt them a different hand. They're off in the Premier League. They're earning crazy money. He's not. And he feels the yeah. game owes him a little bit. And of course... He, he 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 got drawn in. He got drawn in, and eventually, um, you know, he, he he it was uncovered, and and his reputation was ruined. And it was he was making thousands of bets because he felt hard done by by a system that had led to to big inequalities. I mean, his name's Andy Mangan. It's quite a, a well known case these days. I was going to ask you about the women's game, though, because for those who don't know, women's football certainly in in England has had has had a fantastic summer. In, England won the European Championships. It was uh, um, the, the players became genuine sort of superstars. It was it was on all of the main TV channels. But of course, with that brings brings challenges as well, right? The women's game is going to explode, or it is exploding. But do you see dangers there uh, from a corruption angle? I see I see plenty of dangers in terms of the financial health of the game in general. I think that you're going to see a lot more interest in from sponsors. You know, it, it's, it is just coming. And I think that in an effort to match the ambition now of teams that, you know, let's let's be clear, like the even the top teams in this country, and we're one of the top 20 teams in this country, our facilities are still not good enough for what we're wanting to create. And they're not good enough for professional players. And so our ambition is running high, which means our threshold for maybe checking the background of potential sponsors might be lower because we need to feed our ambition and so I think that there's going to be question like there might be the situation where more questionable forms of money coming into women's football might be accepted because of the pace of change that's happening I think that's probably my my biggest fear with corruption like I say I think that that there might be the situation of spot fixing that could come up I mean I don't I don't know of it myself uh, but I, there was a story a few years ago about two young players. I think they're on the Belgian national team, but like the under 16s or the under 18s. And they were approached to to throw a game. I mean, if you're going to the, you know, a Belgian under 16s or under 18s team and these two girls reported it immediately, <laughs> good for them. You know, there's it's definitely still out there. And I think I'm pretty sure that that was only a few years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm interested with that because I... You hear of similar things in other sports, right? Is, is football really that different? I mean, spot fixing played cricket, still plagues cricket. We, we see uh, um, ring signing in tennis. I mean, it, it's still a thing. So are, are these trends actually sport-wide trends or is, is there a, a uniquely football angle to them? Or is it just that football in England is, is so much bigger than everything else? I think the fact that it's a team sport is significant. So tennis has been riddled with problems for, for years and years and years. And that's partly because you have to you think about it. You have to be like in the top... 20 players, let's say, to, to to really be earning decent cash, right? Top 20 players. I mean, if you think about just the Premier League, you've got 20 teams. So, and those 20 teams have squads of 25 players. So immediately you've got a lot more people making it to the top, top in, in football around the world than, than are in tennis. So it, it does mean that there are more people literally in, in football compared to tennis where you might be scraping away to hit the top 100. Top 100 in the world is massive, but you don't feel it if you're probably 100 placed. So I think there are, I think football can be a little bit different um, compared to others. And then just that ability to to spot fix and to throw games is, is a bit harder when you've got more scrutiny. And there's certainly a lot more scrutiny on football than there are on, on other sports. But that's also 
the challenge of when you go down a few more leagues and that's where I think things pop up and, and you do hear of things at, certainly at our men's level so they're playing tier seven uh, so the, those leagues you hear of stories from time to time but there's not that much um, publicized about it because also teams like I don't know brushing things under the carpet a little bit more yeah, I'm not not surprised to, to hear that. I mean, what one of the the things that the the um, the UK government has has talked about, and we've had so many prime ministers over the last years. I lose track of who started this. I think it was Boris Johnson in in 2019 to, talked about having a review about the way that football is governed here, and and the so called fan led review uh, took place. Conservative MP led on this, and she came up with a whole load of recommendations to improve football governance. Now I don't. I don't know how many times the word corruption was used in that review. It may not have been used at all, actually. But what one of the things that they were keen on was getting governance right to, to, to make it more difficult for people to do things that we would argue were bad. Now, it's come out the last few days that Liz Truss, a Norwich City fan, apparently, um, not very keen on a football regulator, which was one of the big parts of this, an independent authority to, to regulate football's affairs. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's that's dead, but it didn't sound very positive when news was uh, uh, news came out about this not so long ago. Would you? What do you think of this idea about regulating football independently via that sort of body? Do you think it sounds good on paper, um, but in practice there are problems? Or what do you make of it? W would that be the type of thing you think would help improve governance quality in, in English football? Um, yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, I think that Liz Truss doesn't like any form of regulation at all. So it doesn't surprise me that she's not backing this one. Yeah, I, th I mean, there's a lot of power that is held by a small number of people, whether that's Premier League or Premier League teams. I mean, last year, for those who don't know, you know, there was the famous failed breakaway from six six Brit uh, English clubs, but across Europe, you know, they they got very close to putting together plans to just form a breakaway league across Europe. And it's astonishing in a way that there wasn't more information leaked in advance of that, which which shows how much a power control siloization, I think, that's, that, that's, that can happen in football. You know, for me, I think there's the greater greater regulation is really important, but sometimes the rules aren't even good enough. So, so if you've got better regulation of already poor What rules, are you regulating? Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, there's been a long discussion about the ownership and director's test here in the UK and whether it's strong enough. Um, because certainly in the past, you know, people have become owners that have quite dubious backgrounds. But, you know, the, the principal always comes back to say, well, they passed, they passed the test. You're like, yeah, but the test isn't all that strong. So, yeah, the regulation has, has to be there for strong, good rules, let's say. So, so what do you think, I'll push a bit on that, what do you think the regulation should look like? Because I'm with you all the way. There's been a number of owners who've taken over English clubs who you do think, how on earth has that been allowed? But there are also plenty where I'm thinking, well, I don't like them very much, but they've probably not done anything illegal and they're just in a type of business that I don't think particularly highly of so where do you draw the line there in a broad sense what would an acceptable owner look like and what would they not look like and what's the bit in the middle I mean from memory and I can't remember who it was but I remember five six years ago maybe even longer now there was an owner that was undergoing an, a corruption trial and uh, also undergoing a trial on human rights abuses do you remember the case? I can't, I can't remember it's, who it was. There's been so many that are in that zone. Right. That I'm not, it sounds familiar, but carry, carry on. So Yeah, so I, I, I think it was in Thailand. Yeah. So, but that person cleared the owners and directors test quite easily, even though undergoing current, not former, they hadn't been thrown out. They were still on trial. 
so that's what we're talking about. That's like how strong the rules are. I, I don't, I, I also understand your point around you might not like someone or, you know, there's, there can be hostility to overseas owners just for being foreign, not from the UK. Uh, yeah, I, I, it, is a, it is a tricky one. And, and one that I actually haven't grappled with as much since being at the club because I'm, it feels very distant when you see the amount of money that's going into Newcastle United right now. Um, I do want to mention them, but as soon as you go there, yes, I was thinking Newcastle. Yeah, yeah but you know the, the amount of money that goes in. I mean, one of the one of the interesting kind of ethical things that I've been turning over is the fact that with that new money, and this might be a niche concern potentially, but I, I won't call it niche. Um, with all that money that, that has gone in, they are now bothering to invest in their women's team. If you were a woman playing for Newcastle United. A, a regime that doesn't treat women particularly well in their own country, and now you're receiving money to to turn professional, to you know, professionalize. Let's say you're in a very difficult situation. Should you, you know, you've been starved of resources for so long, and then the money comes in. Personally, I would like to think that if I was in that team, I would stand up and walk away. <laughs> but if unless you're in that position, you, you don't you don't really know. And I feel like that's probably what a lot of Newcastle fans have felt. And then, you know, if, if results go their way, then they, they easily forget. I, I kind of do wish that football fans were a little bit better at this. Um, because a lot of the time when I talk about some of these issues, I just get pushed back and say, yeah, but if we win, it's, it's all right, isn't it? And I'm like, mm, is it? <laughs> well, this is one of the problems with sport, isn't it? It, it it's also yeah. puts a mirror to society. And when you're, you're as big as football is, and it's not just, in, you know, that's not just in England, it's a global game, as I said before, then then some parts of society really are going to show that they've got no ethical principles w whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So so I'm not massively surprised that some fans just want to see their team win. And of course, Newcastle United fans, and I know a few are in university in Newcastle, I'm very fond of the place. Um, they will say, well, hold on a minute, what, why, why aren't you going to Man City? Mm, exactly. Why aren't you going at some of these other owners? What, why all of a sudden is Newcastle the boom man? And, and they're not wrong. There's a broader challenge about, about governance in, in sport that I think is just too difficult for many people to, to, to really engage with. Having said that, are there any figures in the, in the field of sports governance who you particularly look up to as doing a good job here or, 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 or people who've done things where you think that they've got the right idea even if they've not been successful in what they've actually done at that club or in that environment. Mm -hmm. Are there any real go-to leadership figures that you can yeah, think um, of? Yeah, a couple, although not necessarily. Yeah, okay, so there are... So a personal hero of mine is Moya Dodd. She has... She, you know, was working for the Australian Federation. She was one of the first women to be elected onto FIFA. Um, at a time when that FIFA corruption scandal was happening, she was one of only two people to reject the Rolex watch that was offered by way of bribe. So she is full of integrity. I'm now lucky enough to call her a friend. Uh, and I often think, you know, what would Moya do in this situation? Uh, I think, again, I'm kind of veering onto the women's side, uh, but Dame Sue Campbell at the FA has uh, done a brilliant job of fighting the corner of women's football in within the FA that that is composed of members, many of whom do not care about women's football and don't understand it, don't see the value of it, just are not interested and hold a lot of power. So I think she's had, you know, she's had to have a lot of uncomfortable conversations and really push and fight where a lot of other people have gone, do you know what, my time's up, I'm done. Other clubs, there's interesting clubs doing good stuff. So a little bit niche, but Grimsby Town, 
got a new owner, Jason Stockwoods. Um, he's been involved in the B team that some, some of your listeners might be aware of. You know, the B team is a group of businesses that are trying to do better stuff. Yeah, a plan B for business. Yep. So he um, he's just t- taken over as an owner of Grimsby and within one year got them promoted. He's got Pretty that nice, Paul Hurst, nice manager. story. Yeah, yeah. Very, very frustrated well. because I, I want that story over here at Lewis, but it's bloody hard <laughs> to uh, get promoted. But um, the one thing that he's trying to do is reconnect the football club with the community. And I think that's, for me, a lot of this comes back to what is the point of football? Is it just business and entertainment? I go to plenty of conferences where they tell me, yes, that is it. Or is it actually about community, purpose, heart, passion, emotion, connecting with friends, connecting with family, connecting with players, supporting, bringing your town together, your community together? For me, obviously, as you can tell, I feel towards the latter it's not for me business and entertainment, but it's um or it's not you, just you earn money to enable yourself to entertain, right? And to do all of those good things that Lewis does and, and a lot of other clubs do as well. So money's a, a key part of it, surely. But you I think the bigger picture is why do we even bother? It's just twenty-two people kicking a bag of wind about, right? Yeah, it matters to, to many millions and billions of people, arguably, around uh, around the planet. So I think that can be forgotten all too quickly, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I think that probably comes back to my point about Lewis FC being a club with a personality. I, I want to know what you stand for. And there's plenty of clubs out there that I don't really know what they stand for other than winning games. And I just think that there's, you've got something powerful. You've got power to do something. And, you know, you've got Forest Green Rovers in the UK as well, which is a vegan team. Their players... Those vegan um, pies are rubbish, Maggie. I was there two weeks ago. <laughs> I, I, I like the idea, but they've got to work on the quality of the pie. But I definitely add one because I think it's a great thing to do. But yeah, yeah. Forest Green Rovers, interesting case, aren't they? It's an interesting case. Yeah, it's, you know, they're, they're trying to be a fully sustainable football club. Like, you know what they stand for. You know what they totally. stand for. You know that you're going to get a vegan pie. But, um, but and I just, you know, that's an interesting concept. And, you know, people know us at Lewis, mainly for our equality side of the club, um, but hopefully also for our fan ownership and the, the, the kind of ethical side as well. But, but you know, I say it, that might be good for business. I, th- I certainly think it is with Forest Green that no one would have heard of Nailsworth, which is where Forest Green Rovers are based, for those who don't know, unless th- th- they've made a big play about being a club with a bit of soul, right? So I think it's been really good for them. And I'm sure it's the same with Lewis, right? Oh, I mean, over the la- well, I think for us, investing in the women's team properly has led to a five-fold increase in revenue over five years. I mean, yes. <laughs> but is that because having a personality is a good thing or just investing in women is a good thing? I mean we now have two streams of revenue as opposed to just one. So I think um, we, we hold people back quite a lot of the time by trickling little bits. You know, I, I'm used to play football for a long time. I'm used to receiving small little pockets of, of, of money, which just keeps that relationship of deference and, and control. And you should be so. thankful for those too, right? I'm very grateful. Yeah, that was it. They were, they were, people would expect you to be sort of, yeah. oh my goodness, thank you very much. Yeah. I've seen oh, yeah. It. I've got into discussions and arguments about me not being grateful for things. And it's uh, it's one of those moments where I have to take a deep breath and walk away. Yeah. Pick your fights and all that. Um, last <laughs> question. If, if I could ask you to summarize, um, do, do you think in five years' time that, that the world of football in England and more broadly, and perhaps even sport more broadly, it's going to be a, in a better place in terms of the way that it, it thinks about governance and it thinks about the corruption challenges that are deeply inherent in the way many sports are run, or do you think it's going to be in a worse place? Obviously, predicting the future is pretty hard, but what, what's your <laughs> instinct? Are we going in the right direction? I, I think it will probably be a patchwork. I think that 
individual sports have to go through a scandal before they understand the value of governance. And so I think that some big things will happen in certain places. I don't know, maybe that will hit football at some point and then there'll be a review and then there'll be an evening out um, in that particular sport. But I don't think that, I don't think, I don't necessarily think that sport as a whole is marching towards better governance. I think it's kind of, I think unfortunately you do have to go through, you have to have a bit of a down before you go for the up, which I think we see in business when we talk about anti-corruption as well. Some of the better managed businesses these days had a corruption scandal and then had to atone for it. And I think that's probably where sport is as well. Sounds entirely plausible to me. Maggie, thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us. We really appreciate it. Best of luck for uh, for all the Lewis sides moving forward. Who's your next game against out of interest? Who, should, who are the men and women playing? Yes, the men have Billericay this weekend and oh. then the women have Sheffield United on Sunday as well. So, uh, yeah, we'll be looking for six points if we can. Marvellous. Well, best of luck and uh, thanks again. Thank you very much.